from the depths of a pandemic, out of a well of despair. I, Supriya Nair, with my friend Nipanjana Pal, are here to bring you a new episode of The Lit Pickers. And today, we want to talk about a cornerstone of our childhoods, which was so long ago that we barely have the faintest memories of those happy times. But that cornerstone is named Enid Blyton, or rather the books that she wrote. Specifically, Noddy. I think the first English book that I read was Noddy. What was yours? Yeah, I remember Noddy as one of the first birthday presents, one of the first bookish birthday presents that was ever given to me. Yeah. And then it was a steady diet of uh, Enid Blyton for me until about age six or seven, which was when I discovered other writers like Roald Dahl and... And then that was a different rabbit hole. But but Enid Blyton kind of stayed with me well into my teenagers. And it would be like that comfort read, you know, the Mallory Towers stories. You were more of a Sinclair girl, weren't you? I associate Enid Blyton's novels so heavily with my school library. So Sinclair's Mallory Towers and The Naughtiest Girl, which were all Enid Blyton's famous school stories are kind of inextricably associated with my own school days. Even though I did not go to a boarding school and did not open cans of Nestle's milk (laughs) for midnight feasts and refused to give them to a snobbish, pimply girl who inevitably thought more about herself than other people. Which is great because I grew up to be that girl. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Enid Blyton was, was very comforting. I think maybe more comforting to our elders than than it was to us because Mm. they knew that you couldn't go wrong with like the stolid British morality and the general kind of unsexy, gung-ho, girly appeal of the standard Enid Blyton book. Of course, they didn't know back then that like, it's not okay to call people gollywogs, but perhaps we can't blame people for uh, not being in step with the times. You know, what's really interesting is that And I was looking her up, even back in the 1950s. Enid Blyton was roundly criticized in the UK to the point where librarians actually refused to buy her books for the libraries. Hmm. She had an effective ban on her from BBC. BBC did not do radio adaptations of her books. They didn't acknowledge the radio proposals that she sent in. Uh, teachers and librarians didn't want to stock her books. One of the reasons was that she was too prolific. There were too many books of hers to buy because librarians get a particular quota of books that they can buy. Like it's a number. And their point was that they're A, too many, and B, they're terribly written. So no, we don't want children reading this stuff. Oh, that's why it flooded Indian libraries. Well, the thing (laughs) is, A, maybe, but it's also that the kids loved it. Yes, maybe Noddy filled our school libraries because the UK librarians didn't want it. But it was a standard criticism that Enid Blyton writes too many books. So there are too many books for the libraries to buy and they're badly written. Hmm. And this continued for decades. And it's this really interesting situation where she's remained popular in spite of criticism. Like successive generations have had different critiques, ideological aesthetic, apparently, you know, a range of criticisms. But she stayed popular because kids liked reading this stuff. And they still seem to like reading this stuff. I mean, now I think it's a little harder to tell because 
I think for a generation of parents, she's a go-to author. So you kind of end up giving a kid an Enid Blyton, whether or not that kid necessarily wants to read this stuff. And also now, particularly, there's such a rich sort of ecosystem of children's fiction Mm -hmm. that Enid Blyton is one of many, as opposed to when we were growing up, there were much fewer names that sort of became mainstream as children's fiction authors in English. I mean, regional literature is obviously a different thing. Yeah, and I think if you were a child through the 90s, more likely than not, you were, you know, on that unfortunate cusp of India's trajectory where the National Book Fair books that your parents maybe grew up on were no longer uh, of good enough quality for you. But Mm. your local bookseller, even if it was just your newspaper distributor, you know, with an extra shelf in his shop, was always likely to stock... Enid Blyton. And I'm interested in what made her kind of industrially available to children in cities all around India. But while that is perhaps a business story that I would like someone to tell, I also really think that this sort of really prim morality Mm. of hers made her very easy to consume. My librarian, for instance, would not bat an eyelid at someone checking out an Enid Blyton. But Uh, We never stocked Nancy Drew's in my convent school library. And I think that was because Nancy Drew was too, was too American and And too too transgressive. Also too transgressive. (laughs) She picked her own clothes. She broke the rules. Her dad told her not to do something. She went ahead and did it anyway. Mm. She also had her own car. Like there's a whole level of privilege and transgression that Nancy Drew kind of embodies. But what's really interesting about the... Enid Blyton characters is that what you know it's so true what you're saying there's this whole prim good boys and good girls who behave in particular coded ways and you know unless they're the naughtiest girl in school but that's the thing there is always a naughty disruptor Mm -hmm. sometimes she is at the center of the story like an Amelia Jane or the naughtiest girl in school Sometimes they're at the margins characters like the infamously named Gollywog the racist connotations of which are massive Mm -hmm. and I was again which I I didn't realize until I grew up absolutely I had no idea I mean this is also part of the feature of not being part of a culture where that sort of racialized blackface character has it was not in our immediate culture so we didn't realize what we were seeing in the Gollywog iconography but also by the same token I was trying to remember and I asked my mom this There was a book that she had written called The Three Gollywogs, in which the three Gollywogs were named Golly, Wog, and the N-word. That was actually what she had written. And my mother was like, I am absolutely certain we did not give you this book, (laughs) you know? But there you go. I mean, I would have loved to give her the benefit of doubt and say that maybe she was just, you know, having fun with it. But... There was clearly some conscious racist tones because you do not name a character the N-word if you don't intend it to have racial overtones, not even undertones, right? No, indeed. Margaret Mitchell, who wrote the infamous Gone with the Wind, was criticized for... Mammy. Was criticized for writing Gone with the Wind even at the time. So I can't imagine that Ian Blyton was free of that. Perhaps it was just colonial resentment... Uh, overshadowing everything else. Uh, And it says something about being a colonial subject or a post-colonial subject that you end up uh, consuming the stereotypes Mm. even as the fights to bust them are going on elsewhere as, 
as you said, I can't imagine that the three Gollywogs came out and there was no one in the UK who looked at that at the time and said, this is outrageous. So there were a lot of people in the UK, not specifically referring to the three Gollywogs, but referring to Enid Blyton's fiction in general and taking it, taking it absolutely apart, hmm. right? Because of the kind of characterizations that she did. Now, in the 2000s, the Gollywogs would be replaced by goblins, which is really ironic given the kind of anti-Semitic imagery that surrounded the goblin character. And yet perfectly acceptable, as we know from the world's most famous children's franchise, Harry freaking Potter, which yeah. we talked about in season one, yeah. which actually openly, you know, features anti-Semitic stereotypes in the form of goblins. That somebody just allowed... So allowed that replacement or that substituting, please apply bunny ears to substituting, was accepted quite easily. Gollywog becomes goblin or teddy bears, which I feel is a slight on the poor teddy bear. What did they do? But anyway, uh, but the thing if is... If you go down to the woods today, you're in for a big <laughs> surprise. <laughs> oh... My God, you know who I heard that nursery rhyme from the first time? Anuradha Podwal, Mm. who would then go on to have a massive career singing bhajans. But to my head, she was always, if you go down to the wood. Anyway, let's not sing. Mm. Okay, Um, coming back to... I fully intend to, but I'll do that at the end of the summer. That's you and me serenading each other. (laughs) Others don't need to hear this. So yes, so goblins and teddy bears replaced gollywogs which in a lot of cases obviously didn't make sense. Now, apparently 2016 onwards, there was some change in terms of... 2016? 2016. There were also... That was yesterday. (laughs) Yeah. But also, you know, there were other things that were changed in Enid Blyton's stuff was stuff like the name Dick became Rick. Fanny became Franny. Oh, that's unfortunate. Which is unnecessary, surely. Yeah, who cares about what Americans call their genitals? (laughs) Or what anyone calls their genitals. I mean, if you're looking at a six-year-old boy and the first thing you think of is the penis, then there's something wrong with your head. Not the fact that he's named Dick. Fanny reminds me of The Faraway Tree, which I think may be one of the few Enid Blyton series that I might still give to a kid to read. So I loved the Magic Faraway Tree series. But incidentally, that had a character called Dame Slap. Do you remember? That's right. She's now Dame Snap, and she doesn't oh, slap. She, oh, because she can't, she she can't, can't inflict corporal children. punishment yeah. on children. So Not a bad change, I have to say. Well, I don't know, because I don't think the character works anymore. Like, what does she do? Snap at children? Like, Well, that's hurtful too. I, I guess. <laughs> but it, her dialogues, and you have to rewrite her dialogues, right? Yeah. So I, mean, I, see, I see the problem. There are, but as an idea... But I mean, there's, you know, also other stuff in the faraway tree. What are you going to do about the fact that Moonface is like the sexiest guy in children's literature? I don't know. And the on and off thing that he has. Untamable sexiness. Right there. The on off thing that he has with Silky. Mm. We saw it. We saw it. And we cheered. (laughs) (laughs) You can't take it away from us. It was deeply disproportionate. Like when you look at the illustrations. Yeah. He has no business feeling like a player, but then that is so many men that yeah. it all adds up. That's true. I mean, if he had a little more beef on him, I think it would have been... Yeah, well, I think you it, know. Yeah, but that, that, maybe that would have been too sexy for a children's book. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, Faraway Tree, the Toyland series, everything except for the school series, actually, the mm-hmm. others have gone through significant edits. And apparently it's only since 2016 that both publishers 
and the Enid Blyton Trust, essentially, have kind of backed off and said, you know what, we don't care. Whatever it is now, just read that, Hmm. which I find quite interesting. For me, while I absolutely cannot get behind what, you know, the three gollywogs, for instance... Or any gollywogs, now that I know that they were not just, just like friendly, adorable dolls who happen to have African features. Yeah, it's not a coincidence suddenly. So definitely cannot get behind that. Mm -hmm. But I am very interested in how Enid Blyton in her stories would always have the disruptor and the good kid. Mm -hmm. Now, while the good kid is constantly sort of, you know, praised and everything, and they are more often than not the center. And if they're not the center, if the disruptor is at the center, then their reformation is kind of the arc that we're following. Like you Absolutely. Know. But what you remember, nine times out of 10, when the disruptor is at the focus, is not them having become good, but what they did when they were bad. And it's written in a way that you will remember them doing all the bad things. Mm -hmm. She was clearly capable of writing it in a way that the good things would be the memorable stuff. She chose not to. So there is an interesting sort of pushback, particularly at the way girls have to be. Yeah, and don't forget that in all of these school stories, there's also like... The, the spectrum extends further and there's always the, the goody, goody girl. Mm. And you never want to be that girl because, yeah. you know, she's even worse. And in she's some so ways. boring. Yeah, she's even worse in some ways than the bitch. What you want to be is somewhere <laughs> in between. Yeah, and one of the things that I will say, looking back to my childhood, which involved a copious number of Enid Blyton school stories, is, is that the idea that you had to grow up and go out into the world and be of some use was never in question. Mm. You, The idea that you would go to college, that you would have a career, all of this being written in a time when I think it was not necessarily de rigueur, even though morality around women and their careers had changed a lot between the two wars in Europe. I think that filtered down and that kind of normalized the idea that you would have to work for a living. Yeah. As far as respectability goes, I'm okay with that message filtering down to to girls no matter what and there is a lot of so one of the first major critics of Enid Blyton was this gentleman called Bob Dixon who pointed you mean Bob Rickson Rickson really oh no oh yeah yeah Rickson let's not call him Dixon I mean my tender sensibilities were very offended just at the thought of saying the word sin anyway (laughs) So he pointed out a lot of criticisms and he was one of the major influential critics to take Enid Blyton's work down in sort of mainstream critical culture. And one of the things that he pointed out, I think actually it was him or maybe it was another one, but anyway, some cultural critic definitely pointed out that almost every bad person in an Enid Blyton story is a working class person. Mm. There are very few bad guys or criminals who are upper class. Mm. And this is true, I think. I mean, there are studies done of uh, sort of, you know, statistically look at her work. And so there is probably a very clear class bias if you're looking for it. This is not unique to Enid Blyton, though. Across the whole Victorian onwards prose landscape Mm -hmm. of English fiction, Working class people are demonized, criminalized, just seen in a sort of unredeemable negative light. Mm-hmm. Nine times out of ten. Even the if dehumanization they, is real. Yeah, exactly. 
But what's always interesting within Ed Blyton, not so much for the class thing, but is this point of what she's folding into the story. Like she's bringing in class into children's stories at a time when this was not done at all, mm-hmm. right? And of course, there are stories in which she certainly could have done it better. But the other point is that, you know, there wasn't a lot of the language that we have today the language of criticism that notices these things and sort of asks writers to be responsible about it, this language was not there when she started writing. Because let's not forget, this is a woman who started writing in the 1940s, Mm -hmm. right? Should she have been responsive and alert to the things that are happening around her? Absolutely. And she certainly could not have been immune to a lot of it. But she also did bring in ideas that were completely far beyond left field, And for me, the greatest example of that is the gender dysmorphia in George. Mm. George of the famous five, who repeatedly says that they want to be a boy. Mm -hmm. They do everything that today, when we look at it with the sort of language and the conversations that we have had, we can see that this is a trans character, Mm -hmm. right? When she was writing George... This vocabulary just wasn't there. It's not like trans people were not there, obviously, but the vocabulary to articulate their experience wasn't there. And yet in it a was, children's book. At and that. it was there in a children's book. Mm-hmm. And George was celebrated for not being the ideal girl, which was Anne, I think. Mm. Who was kind of a wet blanket. Exactly. Couldn't be too much of a wet blanket because the nation needed you in those factories at the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really interesting point. And you have now got me wondering if Enid Blyton is more progressive on the subject of gender identity than J.K. Rowling. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> but no, but that, that, that aside, that aside, it's interesting, this idea of introducing characters for whom an empowering or a liberating language doesn't exist hmm. or can't be made up. I'm thinking of, as you were talking of George, I was thinking of Carlotta, Mm. the circus girl in St. Clair's, who is described as a gypsy, which is a word that is offensive. Mm. I'm aware that perhaps there are audiences who might not be aware of that. The preferred term is Romani, and who is seen as strange and foreign and other, but who doesn't have to do anything to redeem herself in the eyes of these girls or prove herself worthy. She just ends up being a cool character. Exactly. um, Who is wholeheartedly loved by her friends without having to work for it, which I imagine was not exactly the experience you were likely to have if you were actually a young Romani girl who happened to end up in an upper-class boarding yeah, school. Yeah, first of all, how would you even get admission into one of these yeah. spaces? Well, Carlotta got it because her dad is yeah. like a rich English guy. Yeah, yeah. I'd be interested to see what queer critics have made of Enid Blyton and her school stories. Let us she not has... ignore the fact that Bill and Clarissa and Mallory Tars were the first lesbian couple yeah. that many of us encountered in fiction. And not only were they like nice girls, you know, they were actually like the coolest girls. They ran off to their own stables and lived <laughs> as like happy horse ladies for the rest of their lives. Like you cannot imagine anything more fun. Or more wholesome, truly. Yeah. And you know what? Good for her. <laughs> My face is making the arrested development good for her, not Jeff expression right now. <laughs> On which note? On which note? So here's the thing, right? At the end of the day, when you're looking at someone like Enid Blyton... She's far from perfect and the literature that she's written needs to be interrogated much like any literature that you inherit from the past. 
but particularly in our current incredibly vibrant children's literature landscape, which has, you know, which has stories like Julian is a Mermaid, which has incredibly diverse stuff, whether it's in India or it's abroad. Including your own books for Pratham. Oh, thank you. Yes, my Puchku series with a purple-faced little girl. But, you know, we find in children's literature a certain kind of consciousness and awareness of giving readers, child readers, things that are fun and also aware and uh, relevant to the societies that that these stories are coming out of. I don't think we would have got here had it not been for the detours and missteps through Toyland and all of these school stories and the faraway trees and the clouds in which Enid Blyton encouraged us to bury our heads, albeit for a little bit of time. So there's something to be said for that, but it just, it's a reminder that no matter how charming that past is, it needs to be interrogated for it to stay relevant in the present, Hmm. which is as much as we can hope for. And with that, we're going to uh, draw this one to a close. Thank you once again, Miss Nair. Thank you, Miss Bell. And we will see you again soon. If you go down in the woods today, you're in for a big surprise. It's lovely down in the woods today. For every bear that ever there was was gathered there for certain because today's the day the teddy bears go for a picnic. The Lit Pickers is a Made in India production. Don't forget to rate and review and follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, tell everyone you know about the show. Share it on social media, tell your friends and family, scream about it on your rooftop. It really helps get the word out. Oh, and use the hashtag LitPickers. Follow Supran the Panjana on Twitter or Instagram. You can also find all of the books that you've mentioned or recommended in an online resource via a link in our episode description. Thanks, and keep listening! <laughs>